All right, 1 Corinthians this morning. We'll start there. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Your task is to be thinking of examples of the one another's that would unfold here as we study them. What, what do we see in the Bible that illustrates this principle? Uh, or any other input you have, as always, we want this to be a time of discussion as we're trying to figure out how the Bible guides us in relating to one another. Uh, maybe something this week will be helpful in the home, perhaps helpful in the workplace even. Uh, whatever it may be, let's be instructed by this survey of the instructions that come to us in the form of one another language. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 24 says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Now, I was curious uh, when I looked up the words here, why the ESV translated one another here as neighbor, and I I just don't know. Um, But the word neighbor there is the word another, so it's, it's one of our relationships to one another. And, you know, just... Just to give you an insight into how sometimes the Greek works, it doesn't always fill in all the words. So the Greek gives us the verb seek, uh, but it doesn't have the word good or the word own. It just says seek his, not, (laughs) but another. Uh, So that's all that's there in the Greek. And you have to kind of fill in in English the way we think to know what do you mean seek not his, but another doesn't mean seek a person. It means not to seek his assumed own benefit or good. Uh, rather than doing that, seek the good of another. So good is supplied there. A couple other words to help us understand it in English. But now our task is, what does this mean in the context that unfolds here? Because the general principle makes sense to us. Don't seek your own good, but seek the good of another. This doesn't mean... You should work hard and provide well for a family. It doesn't mean you should be concerned about your health. It's not saying don't ever seek your own good. Um, This is in relationship, remember. Uh, This is a mindset. This is a heart uh, and how values are assessed. And he's saying don't live your life consumed with an inward self-preservation kind of mode, but have an antenna perpetually in tune to others' needs. Um, So there's some balanced thinking here in the broad principle of not seeking your own good but the good of another. Uh, This isn't self-neglect. This isn't foolish spending, um, giving away all your time and energy, running yourself ragged, and never taking care of home. That's not what it's saying. but let's find how this principle of seeking another's good fits in the context of what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 10. And really, we just have to look back a verse to see him say, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. He says it another way. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Having said that, Let no one seek his own good, the things that are lawful, you can do it, but rather seek the good of his neighbor. And so 
even the verse before puts this good seeking in a context of lawful things, legitimate things that you could do, uh, yet a different boundary than just is it moral or is it good and right. There's this other boundary of is it helpful and uh, is it edifying? Does it build up? But that boundary isn't just for me. Is it edifying for me? Does it build me up? Because immediately he says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. What's the rest of the context? Verse 25. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He's addressing, is it lawful? And he's saying, sure, buy it at the meat market. Doesn't matter where it's what it's been through and where it's been and who's selling it. God created it. It's a good thing to enjoy. It's lawful. But then he starts getting into these other nuances of thought. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. You know, somebody, some idolater in the city is your neighbor and he invites you over and You pretty much know where he got the meat. It was offered to idols, but he's serving it for dinner. And Paul says, if you're disposed to go, if you see this as an opportunity, go and eat it. Don't don't give it any thought. Don't sit there and work it through in your mind. Well, what if, what if, because God knows this meat was offered to an idol. No, just go. But then he says in verse 28, but, or, you know, we would say on the other hand, if someone says to you, hey, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you or for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? He says, if somebody says, oh, I don't know if we should eat that. It's been offered to idols. That could be really bad. Well, that person may need some instruction and they could probably grow. But in that moment, he says, well, well, don't eat it for a matter of conscience, not your own, because you're probably back there in verse 26. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. I want to eat that steak. But if that other person's conscience is offended by that and weak, then you could accommodate that concern by not eating the meat. But he says that's his conscience, not yours. Because Paul's saying, why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? I, I can make my decision based on what I think is right, but I also have to factor in what this other one is thinking. Roy? I can think of two places where this thought process of all things are lawful for me is used. And it doesn't seem like in either place the author chooses to respond to that statement and correct it because it seems like it needs to be corrected. They, they let it stand both places and add on to it some sort of a modifying or context. But we know everything isn't lawful for us. There are direct commands of God given in the New Testament that we should not violate. So just, I've, I've struggled with that for a while. What, I mean, he didn't even see, seem to think it was significant enough to say, no, that's not right. In what context then? Or... Another place I can think of is, I think, 1 Corinthians 6. 
The belly is made for food, and food is made for the belly. I think it's up in the middle of the chat. Okay. I think it's helpful, like, in our chapter here, it's not that, you know, we didn't read all the way back at the beginning of chapter 10, um, but the, the lesson of idolatry is unfolding there, and so we're getting this context of, you know, these two different camps, the idolaters and how they use bread and how they bless, how they, how they function. So there's already a distinction. I think he's clearly saying, when he says all things are lawful, at least here, he's, he's not saying... There's nothing immoral. Uh, clearly, idolatry was the problem in the beginning part of the chapter. Um, but when it comes to the bread, uh, or, you know, he talked about the pagan sacrificing and offering to demons and not to God. You know, can you drink the cup of demons? And now he's going to talk about the meat offered to idols. Clearly, we're in the camp of what we eat and drink is, is not in and of itself the moral dilemma. Um, he's, he's wanting us to recognize those things are lawful for us, yet in that category of what is lawful, what is moral, what is godly, once we've defined that boundary, there, there's also another fence. Um, and it's this, it's this mindset of it's, it's not just about you, but it's about the good of another. That's, that's not the only principle that we need to think of on Christian liberty, mind you. So Paul's point is we should be concerned about how our actions and attitudes, our decisions affect others. We may be well within the boundaries of godliness, of righteousness. We're not transgressing in any way. And yet we still have to be thinking of others. So as I said, this is just one of the factors in Christian liberty. Because Paul made it clear, just because some other Christian doesn't like what you do, doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. That, that's not what he's saying here. He, he's, again, remember, we're, he's, he's zooming in on these relationships. So this isn't some random Christian that says, oh, I think that meat was offered to idols, you shouldn't eat it. Great, now I can't do that because there's a Christian in the world somewhere that thinks that's a bad idea. Um, Paul's point is, why should my decisions be governed by someone else's conscience? It would almost make us think it's a contradiction, like, who cares what others think? I'm going to do what I want to do. Paul would say, there's a sense of that, but you are free. That's Christian liberty. But will you, in love, regulate your liberty for the good of that brother who's, who's engaged in life with you in that moment? He's not saying survey every Christian and if somebody doesn't like it, you shouldn't do it. He's saying, no, if that guy right there with you that you're doing life with struggles with that, then maybe now isn't the best time to exercise your liberty. Was that you, Paul? Yeah. Um, Not too long ago, I was navigating something with um, some family and friends that was challenging in the area of Christian liberty. And I found an article by Ligonier. I can't remember who the author was. I'm sure we would know who it was if I could remember but um, and they brought up a great point which was a lot of times when we think about Christian liberty in this context we'll like you just said like survey <laughs> survey says <laughs> like okay I shouldn't do this um, because someone might be offended and they use this kind of question which was are you potentially going to shipwreck the faith of someone else 
because that that is the context is if you are if your actions are actually going to jeopardize or potentially lead them into sin because of immaturity you're leading them into the spiritual rocks uh, that they don't have the maturity or whatever to navigate that's something that you should avoid whether it was with a christian or a non-christian in that context and that was really helpful um, and especially in the case that I was navigating to understand, okay, am I just talking with someone about their preference? Um, and it gave some ammo too. Ammo's the wrong word. Um, <laughs> gave some good conversation starters to be able to even approach it with them with saying, like, I, I don't want to shipwreck your faith. So if that's what's happening right now, like, I will gladly defer. And that was a helpful, like, no, like, I'm going to continue doing what I believe or whatever. Okay. <laughs> yeah. If you look at your Bible, clearly Paul says in uh, verse 29, why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? All right. So that that's not just, Paul didn't take an aside and ramble apart from the Holy Spirit. There, There is... There's, there's truth there that I can't live my life based on what everyone else thinks is absolutely right in every application. You know, mom and dad, in your home, you're going to have to decide if your kids watch Disney, right? Some Christian out there is going to say, you will ruin your kid forever if they see a Disney movie. And, you know, if, if you never parent and never have any conversations about anything and put your kids in front of Everything the world has to offer, sure. At some point, you're probably not being a good gatekeeper. But, you know, if you choose with discretion to let your kids watch certain things, that you're going to have to decide what you want to do there. Uh, you can't live by everyone else's conscience. That's one of the principles. It's just that that comes with other thoughts here. And Paul says, wait a minute, this... But this isn't all about you. It's not, you don't keep, you can't keep saying, but I have my Christian liberty and no one else can encroach on that. No, he's saying just the opposite. Yes, you do have your liberty and at times you can, you can exercise it freely. But when you're doing life with this brother who's right there with you and they say in that moment, boy, I don't understand this. That looks really bad. That's when verses 23 and 24 come into play. While it may be lawful for you, you may have the freedom. The law allows you to exercise discernment in a certain way. You also have to ask, is this helping the other brother? Is it building him up? In other words, your concern should be whether or not your freedom, all things are lawful, is in any way a hindrance to another believer's progress. Are you hindering their progress? Hence the helpful and edifying. That then becomes another factor in your decision making. Am I hindering their progress? That was Paul's illustration there. Not Paul in Corinthians, Paul in row seven. Uh, he was saying, okay, wait a minute. If, if there's a danger here that, I, that I'm harming someone else, I'm hindering their progress then I should in that moment say, not now. Now, there's other principles. You can go elsewhere in the study of Christian liberty and think, now, wait a minute. The Bible even calls that person a weaker brother. Should they spend the rest of their Christian life with that label, the weaker brother? 
I think the use of stronger and weaker there would imply, no, they should be anticipating growth in knowledge of the word and applying it to these sticky situations. So that's, that's not a moniker we claim and then forever win arguments with. I'm the weaker brother, and, and now, well, actually, boy, we just vaulted you to the head of the line, and you get everything you want, and no one can offend you because you're the weaker brother. Well, no, actually, they need to be growing. It's just that Paul doesn't say, in that moment, grow them. Lecture them and tell them why you're going to exercise your freedom and force them to like it and learn it. And No, he just says, in that moment, not now. Put that, put that brother's spiritual progress as the priority over the liberty that is yours. It, it's yours. You should be able to do that. That brother shouldn't stay weak. He should be strong. He should look at you and rejoice in your liberty and, and encourage you to enjoy God's gifts in the moderation that tempers all of those gifts and you should get along fine, but that's just not the way it is in the church with all different levels of growth and maturity. And so, 1 Corinthians 10, uh, Roy had referenced maybe chapter 6, there's, there's other passages of these, this Christian liberty discussion, um, and it's just one of these categories that I think often because we, we don't think through the multiple uh, nuances the, the various principles that apply to Christian liberty, we kind of settle into one of them, and it kind of feels like there's not much liberty in Christian liberty. Um, but there is. Um, what we need to remember is that all those principles that focus in on Christian liberty are governed by love. That's our umbrella principle for all the one another's, remember. Love one another. But life is nuanced, and Roles are unique and situations are different. And so the, un, the New Testament unfolds all these different applications of love. And one of them is in this relating to one another where we seek the good of another in the exercise of our liberty. Right. It's interesting to me, just a slight sidetrack, the inference or the implication is that we are in each other's lives deeply enough to realize that this thing that I'm doing is causing you a problem and I am close enough that I'm going to start probing to see where the foundations of this cockeyed structure are and see if I can help you move past it. But in the moment, yes, I will defer to you. But the, the, the assumption is we are going to be deeply committed and connected to each other, not just a wave on Sunday and not see you until next Sunday. Yeah, I think that's there in, the, in this idea of, you know, there's some Christian out there somewhere that doesn't like what you do, but what does that mean for us in our practice here? I think the difference is, yeah, when you have someone over to your house and they start seeing how you live life, then you might come across the differences where in your house you do it this way and theirs, they do it a different way. And you might start discovering those areas, those contexts where you actually have to practice Christian liberty. So, you know, I, I don't think this will, like, tip anybody over in their chair if, if you were to know that maybe somebody at Grace Bible Church has alcohol in their home and drink it in moderation. 
uh, and Lord willing, don't struggle with drunkenness. But if you don't know that, if you don't know who, who those people are, like, you're not thinking like, oh, I wonder, if, I wonder if I should pull everybody to see if they think this is okay. No, it's maybe you have somebody over to your house and they go out to the fridge to help you get some stuff for dinner and, you know, they, they see some kind of alcohol in the fridge and, you know, maybe, maybe they just, you know, you see this deathly look come over them and maybe they have a horrible story, a horrible experience or a real struggle and suddenly you realize, okay, this is a context where that person would really struggle with the reality of participating with alcohol in any way and this is not a good time, like, to exercise my freedom, my liberty. Um, but it, it's, it's that scenario because if you only were ever by yourself, it, this isn't going to come up. No brother is there with you that differs in your view of Christian liberties. But if, as Roy said, you're doing life together, you're going to come across this stuff. And, or your kids will, right? They'll be at somebody's house and they'll come home and say, well, they got to do this or I saw them doing that. And you're going to have to say, you know what? In our house, this is the way we do it. And here's why. And, and it's okay. If their mom and dad says they can do that, that's fine. But just know we're going to do it differently. And you as parents have to be okay with that. Um, but rather than saying, oh, we don't do that, well, no, explain to them at that age that there is this thing called Christian liberty where every one of us is responsible to think through what is right, what, it, what do we think is best, and every one of us is responsible to love each other enough to recognize someone else might think a little differently about this. Um, so maybe, maybe you've lived in context where when people were coming over, you had to stuff things in closets and didn't want people to see certain things. And it happens because the church just hasn't really gotten a good handle on Christian liberty. Uh, and it, partly our, our flesh, we, we either are going to, I'm going to be who I am and I don't care what other people think. Well, you should. Um, I appreciate the confidence in your position. You just need some love to accommodate others. And then there's others who live in fear of what everyone thinks, and so they hide everything. Well, that, that's not right either. Uh, you need a little confidence. Uh, appreciate the love you have and being sensitive to everyone, but what do you actually think is right? So somewhere on that spectrum we find ourselves, and Paul's point is love each other. You have liberty, but don't let it run people over. And we're going to see that uh, as we move on to another text here in a moment. Uh, let me just mention 1 Corinthians 12. Really, the whole chapter is a lesson on the one and others, but in verse 25, Paul says that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. So this whole metaphor of the body, um, that all the parts work together. Maybe you went to the doctor this week. Surely somebody did. Um, and, you know, they're tweaking something. Your eyes, you know, your blood sugar level, your inflammation in your knee, whatever it is, we get it. This body is designed with a lot of parts and it's supposed to all work together. So it is in the church. Uh, we are for one another so that the whole body functions well. And what does that look like? Verse 27 or verse 26, 
If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So that gives us a little insight into even our weekly gathering. And you might meet somebody in the lobby and they had a hard week and, and got some bad news and you kind of in that moment step under their dark cloud and you, and you kind of try to feel that with them. And then we worship together and maybe after the service somebody else is telling about, you know, another grandbaby that was born and they're going to go travel and be there and it's all good. And you kind of step into that sunshine with them for a moment and man, that's great. Praise the Lord. That's what it means to have care for one another as members of the body. Well, let's jump to Galatians now, because I want to keep going on that freedom theme. Galatians 5. Verse 13. You were called to freedom, brothers, Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So our one another is serve one another. But Paul reminds us you're under this umbrella of love. That's why I'm telling you to serve one another. It's an expression of love. And that service to one another comes in contrast to freedom. So it's an interesting unfolding of ideas. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity to flesh, but through love, be a servant, a slave. Now, household slave, but still obligation to somebody giving the instructions. So in one verse, we have you're free, but you're a slave. You're free in Christ. You have liberty. You're not bound to legalistic interpretations of what righteousness looks like. Because in the discussion, there was this battle of circumcision. Do you have to be circumcised to be a Christian? And, and Paul's fed up with the argument. He's like, absolutely not. If they want to talk about circumcision, I hope it goes wrong. And they butcher themselves, he says. It's like, let it be a disaster because they're linking the need to circumcision with the gospel. And you can't do that. that that's not the definition of how we are accepted by God. We are accepted by God when we are perfectly righteous. And that's not going to happen apart from faith in Christ. You know, we've, we've boiled it down to, you know, good works don't get you to heaven. Well, actually, the only people in heaven will be those who have a record of perfect good works. It's just that All those works were done by Christ. He fulfilled all the law. His perfect obedience, his perfect righteousness is imputed to us. It's counted to us. So we are made righteous. It looks like we only did good works. Paul's saying there's the freedom because you rest. Your Sabbath is Christ. You don't have to work. You just rest. You trust Christ. You're free. But don't use that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh to be selfish, to do what you want, but rather have this mindset that love enslaves you to others. So it's not too different 
from what we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. There's this freedom, and it's real. Freedom in Christ. And yet, I mean, Paul expresses it in, listen, I'm free. Why should my conscience be bound by someone else? He's saying, I'm free. But he says, in love, I'm a servant to others. Though things may be lawful for me, I don't find it in this moment helpful to my brother. Though it's lawful for me, I don't find this building him up, helping him on his way to maturity. It's actually a hindrance. So these, these passages go together. First, Paul's telling the believers at Corinth there in Greece, hey, you guys, great job on understanding you're free in Christ, but you need to make sure you're not trampling on other brothers who don't understand that yet. Now he's writing over to Galatia over there in kind of what's Turkey now, Asia Minor across the sea, and he's telling them the same thing. Listen, you, you are free, and he's, Paul's heated about this liberty. Stand fast in the liberty that you have, he begins this chapter. But now he's saying only that can go too far. If that's the only truth you grab onto, you neglect the whole counsel of God. Uh, put it all together. You're free, and there will be moments where that freedom can be expressed. But you're also governed by this rule of love, and there will be moments where that seems to trump your freedom. And that's okay, because you're living in both freedom and by love. And by the Holy Spirit, you know when which kind of gets the spotlight. It's no wonder then he's going to go into the next paragraph here about walk in the Spirit so that you don't indulge self, but rather show that fruit of the Spirit. You're called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Here's an explanation, the next verse. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Boy, that's good news, especially to some of the crowd that understood the Mosaic law. They'd be thinking, wait a minute, the whole law, all of those 613 laws and commandments can be fulfilled in one word? Well, one saying, that kind of a word. And here it is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we know that's built on we love God with all our heart, soul, and mind what Jesus called the first great commandment, but the second was like unto it, he says. We might say, if you love God with all your heart, that is obviously going to work out in our relationships. Because Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's how those two laws are kind of linked together. Here Paul is saying, addressing the one another's, our relationship not being selfish, but being slaves to others in love. He says all of the law that God gives on how we should live and treat each other is really summarized in one command. Just love each other. Love others like you've been loved by God, and I don't need to keep writing letters to you about how to live, how to treat the widows, how husbands should treat their wives, how parents should parent their kids, how you should treat your neighbor, how you should be the good Samaritan. I won't have to write about all that if you would just keep this one command and love. I, I think it's God's kindness that he doesn't just say love 
but that he says, here's what love would look like. It'll look like serving one another here in Galatians. It'll look like being careful around a Christian who's not as mature as you are in 1 Corinthians 10. It's going to look like being long-suffering and patient with the weak or the feeble-minded, as it says in older translations. All those one another's are going to, they unfold for us so that we know, oh, this is what love would look like here. By the Spirit, I can do that. So Galatians 5, called to freedom, but freedom tempered by a spirit of love. That means it's not a begrudging thing, like, oh, great, i got to set aside my liberty again. No, I can do this. I can help this person in this moment. Uh, I can be patient with them. And Lord willing, they'll grow and and we'll find a real unity, even in our application, perhaps, um, because we're not weaker and stronger now. We're we're kind of growing up together. Right, and as you're going through that, I'm thinking of Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, about we've been redeemed to walk in the good works that God has prepared for us. So it's under his sovereignty, he's going to be steering us into good works. And I mean, we're not going to get steered into the same place at the same time, the same way. Mm-hmm. But it's God doing that. And uh, also, I go back then to Adam in the garden, had work assigned to him by God. I mean, I just see this all under God's sovereignty, these good works that he's got has for us. And it is a broad palette of how God is ordaining to use you in your circumstances and your yeah. and in the church, then we can influence one another on the good works through the guidance of the Holy Spirit in the lives of others as well as in the lives of ourselves to God. No, I don't think it's coincidence, obviously, that this lengthy passage on the Holy Spirit comes after Paul's kind of climax in chapter 5 of liberty, 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 but liberty governed by love. And it's unique in verse 13. The, the structure of the contrast is such that it's not just a contrast of freedom, Christian liberty, and love, but it's a contrast of freedom as an opportunity for the flesh versus freedom to love and serve others. So if the Son makes you free, you're free indeed. You're, you're free from the bondage of sin, yes, but you're also free to do things you couldn't do before because you were a slave to sin. Now you're free to live out this spirit-filled life of love. We haven't sung it yet this year, but we've sung it was finished upon that cross. Death was once my great opponent. Fear once had a hold on me. But the son who died to save us rose that we would be free indeed free from every plan of darkness, free to live and free to love. You're free, brothers, but don't use your freedom for self. Use your freedom to love and to serve others. That's Paul's point. And actually, back to Paul, I mean, Roy's question, 1 Corinthians 6 was actually, I think, addressing specifically as you go into the chapter of sexual immorality. So he's saying, you're free, but don't use your freedom for sexual immorality. Don't partake of a prostitute. 
That's not what you were called to do. You were free to live as a Christian under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, but there is a certain law that you don't violate, basically the Ten Commandments, but that's a whole different concept than whether or not you should eat meat offered. Sure. So 1 Corinthians 6, uh, tied back to like Romans 6, if grace is ours, should we just sin so that grace is seen more and more evidently? And Paul's like, no, that's not the point. Uh, it's exactly the opposite. If I've received grace, I don't go back in sin. If I've received grace, now I see myself no longer as a slave to sin, but as a slave to righteousness. Um, and by grace, our freedom is a freedom to serve, to be a slave to righteousness willingly. We yield ourselves, remember Romans 6 says, as instruments of righteousness. Well, we can drop down to Galatians 6, and we read in verse 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. All right, so what are some thoughts that you have in your head about what is the law of Christ? What do you think? Bear one another's burdens. We can pretty much understand what that is. And so fulfill the law of Christ. Love one another. When you love somebody, you're going to help bear their burdens. You help bear their burdens if you love them. Yeah, I don't think we have to think of a, what's the, what's the big theological definition here in contrast to the moral law that emanates from God's character throughout all time and eternity versus the moral law and aspects of it codified in the Mosaic law and the Ten Commandments or what is Paul speaking about as the law, is it? all of God's character, the Mosaic law. It, you know, there's, the conversation of law is long and deep. I think here we can think simple and just recognize we were just told earlier, uh, just a paragraph before, that the whole law is fulfilled in one word, and that is love your neighbor as yourself. And we heard Christ teach that. And then when asked, what is the greatest commandment? He gave us that summary from Deuteronomy. And, and, and Jesus wasn't uh, diminishing the Mosaic law or saying, you know, I don't know why I said that. That was a bad idea. Here's the new law I want to give you. Just love everybody. No, he was, he was simply saying that he came and he fulfilled all that law that was carved into stone to show them exactly how to live, but that that law was tied to an old covenant. And it, and it had its purpose, and it created that longing for something better. But now Jesus has told us there in the upper room, I'm instituting a new covenant as a new priest. And that comes with a new commandment. And instead of writing it on tablets of stone, it will be written on your heart. In Galatians 5, the Holy Spirit will work this law in you so that you won't have to turn to somebody and say, as the prophets asked, to your neighbor, what is right? What should I do? No, it'll be written in your heart. You'll know what is right. So 
I think when we see so fulfill the law of Christ, it's just simply looking back and thinking, oh yeah, that love that demands that I serve someone else. And if they're burdened down by this weight, then I'm going to come and kind of try to shoulder some of that weight and help them. Why? Because I'm obeying that law of just loving others. So don't think complicated, though there can be complicated discussions. Think, wait a minute, he just told us about a a new law, a new commandment, a new summary. And especially in the context of one another's, if I'm to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, I think it's easy for us to start at that, okay, the law of Christ has something to do with the greatest commandment of loving God, which is reflected in the way I love others. So bear their burdens because that shows love of Christ. And I think we could easily come up with examples of bearing burdens. Um, And we saw that even in 1 Corinthians there as you enter that dark cloud with those who are under that cloud and also rejoice with those who rejoice. Uh, Let's look at one more, Ephesians chapter 4. It's a similar word. Ephesians 4 begins, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And that whole calling emphasis is from chapter 1, that effectual call. It's the same as Lazarus come forth, life-giving call of God on our lives. We need to walk worthy. What will that look like? It'll be a walk that is marked by all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love. We bear with one another. Has the idea of putting up with, it's, it's the idea of endurance, long-suffering. Uh, again, we're bearing with one another in love. There's, there's that umbrella again. You can only bear with people when you're loving God and loving others. Um, it reminds us that these one another's, they're, maybe this will sound odd, they're, they're really not about one another. They're about God. Do you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind? If so, it will be evident in loving your neighbor as yourself. So the, the real conflict when you're not doing all the one another's, is not so much, oh man, you, you got to connect more with people and do the one another's. No, I would say you need to connect with God. You're not loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That's why nobody can speak to you being in their lives in one of these one another's. We can't isolate and say, man, I'm nailing the first part. I'm loving God with all my heart. I just don't do anything with people. I don't do any of the one another's. That's where I need to do my work. I don't think Jesus would let us separate them like that. If we're truly kind of basking in the reality that while we were sinners, God loved us demonstrably in Christ. If if we've tasted that, we will love others. And so this bearing with one another, my patience with other people, be it my kids, my spouse, friends, family, my patience with them 
is an indication in part of my relationship with the Lord. All right, uh, Rory and then David. I have a friend whose focus in his discipleship is teaching a fairly small group of Christians to love each other well. And, and what we've seen today, it's, it's not a small theme. I mean, you go to uh, later on, it's in 1 John talks about God is love. The people who are born of him are engulfed in love. And, and so often these, you are bathed in love, so you should be spilling love, but it comes out as a command, love one another. It's apparently something we have to exercise our will to do, but we've made it such a secondary thing, and we've shied away from it because some liberals some years ago decided it's a social gospel. It was the key thing in that actual regeneration by the blood of Jesus was an insignificant part. They were wrong. It is not an insignificant part, but we were wrong in throwing out the overriding commands to love one another well. Yeah. If you were hearing that, like the point was there can be, an, we can get out of balance and think, just do good to everybody, and that's Christianity. Well, no. Christianity is the gospel of Jesus Christ, our faith in him alone. Apart from every other worldview or religion that exists, uh, we rest in the work of Christ and not our own work. But if we're doing that, if the love of God dwells in us, it should be evident to people in the good things, in the expressions of love. So much so that John would write to the church, listen, if you don't see somebody as a giving, loving, sharing, concerned person, how dwells the love of God in them? You should not think they're a Christian if they aren't a loving person. So that's the weight of the one another's. We, we have to do this as obedience to commands, but for even the hope of assurance of our salvation. If you're not loving others in some kind of tangible, expressible, demonstrable way, why are you so sure you have encountered the love of God? That, that's the question that's all through the Bible and search yourselves, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. It's this constant, it's not paranoia, but this constant confirmation that here I am again doing righteous things and doing loving things. That's not the flesh. That must be the work of the Spirit in me. Uh, and celebrate those and rejoice in those. David? says that the, you know, who, he, who breaks one part of the law is guilty of all. And I was thinking, as you were saying, with not separating love God and love others, like, if you're guilty of, if you transgress on one, you're guilty of both. Uh, kind of the same idea. You can't separate the two. Uh, all the law is linked to itself. Um, and the same with those people. So to be guilty of breaking any of God's laws, to be guilty of all of it, we see that in the Gospels, but also 1 John. So we can't say, I've loved God with all my heart, but I, I broke this command about bearing with one another and being patient. No, if you failed there, then you didn't love God and keep his commandment as you should have. So we repent. 
and move on. We say, I, I, by God's help, by his spirit, I'm going to, I got to be more patient. I, I got to be less selfish and realize whatever those triggers are that get my impatience going. I'm not confident God's in control of the circumstances or I'm just proud and think people should do it my way. I need to figure out where that root is and deal with it. So don't separate these. Don't think of yourself as a great Christian. You're just not good at the one another's. Think, no, I got some growing to do. Um, God wants me to look like Christ. And is my Christ-likeness evident in the way that I treat others? So Heavenly Father, help us. We've been five or six weeks now looking at your instruction to us on what love would look like in our daily lives. And, And perhaps it's just familiar verses to us, and it's hard for us to put it into practice day by day, but this week, would you allow your Holy Spirit to whisper in our ears the, the truth of love being manifest in a, in a lot of different expressions here that we see in your word. Um, in those very moments of decision point, walking in the flesh or keeping in step with the Spirit, would you, would you show us in those moments what it means to choose to love you by keeping your command to treat others the way that you've told us to? We want that kind of daily, hour-by-hour success this week in our Christian walk. We want to please you with, with that act of worship and obedience. And, and by that, We would long for our marriages to be sweeter, for our parenting to be more clear, uh, for our church relationships to be more engaging and supportive, uh, because this is your design. And by faith, we want to receive your words to us as true and as right and as the very best uh, for us. And so help us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.